Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Praise the Lord, everyone. You can be seated. So good to be in the Lord's house again tonight. Uh, We want to give honor again to your pastor and his wife and to their family. I meant to mention last night we had, I want to thank them for the beautiful room and the insane gift basket. We've got a few of those through the years, but pushing the luggage cart in the room and my wife said my word look at this basket and I stopped and took a, <laughs> took a look at the basket and I said this is not their first time making baskets <laughs> and I, I think it's the best basket we've ever seen it embarrasses our church We were looking through it. That's what you're supposed to do, I guess. Kind of feel, kind of feel embarrassed to say that, but we was really looking through it. And uh, we got water downstairs, and I went down and said, uh, "How much would it cost me buy a couple of these waters?" And they said, "Well, it's free." I said, "Well, that's my favorite price." So I took those up to the room, and then we started sifting through the basket I said there's water in here we start moving I'm not going to tell you you won't be able to you won't be able to sleep tonight thinking I got all that chocolate in the room but my wife said they've got diet cokes in here how'd they know we how'd they know we drink diet coke I said because we're fat (laughs) every old fat person's going to drink diet coke that's how we tell folks in restaurants that we're, we're doing our best to reduce our weight. And everybody knows we're not. But we have, we have enjoyed that basket. I'm telling you, we have enjoyed that basket. I appreciate the privilege to be here. Uh, I, I said last night, and I don't think you realize what a tremendous pastor and uh, his family that you have here to be shepherding this congregation there's a dead, lot of dead churches. There's a lot of dead pastors that don't want revival. They're content with where they are. When I evangelized, I've gone to churches that pastors would say, don't, don't preach to sinners. And don't preach anything to get folks stirred up. Don't preach long. We got, we got some plans after church. And they, they didn't want revival. They wanted a series of services every year and they wanted to build some fellowship. But I want to tell you, there's nothing like a pastor that cares about the people. He wants you to, sur- he wants you to not just survive, but to thrive in the kingdom of God. And you're certainly blessed to have them uh, in this church. I know a lot of churches that would like to have them. I can tell you that. Amen. And we appreciate the privilege to call them our friends. I'm going to the book of Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. 
and I'm going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and again you can just remain seated I've got a lot to cover here I entitled the message last night God is trying to get our attention this is really the second part of that but I'm going to entitle this prophecy is God's plan scheduled Prophecy is God's plan scheduled. I did my best last night to go as fast as I possibly could. And my wife said, man, you were, you were going fast. Well, I got a lot to cover. A lot to cover. And I, I want to get as much as I can in the next three uh, messages at least. And... Um, I apologize if I'm going too fast and you can't keep up with me, but you just have to listen to the tape later. All right? In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1 said, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord, which he shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts the word convocation in the Hebrew it means something called out it's a public meeting or an assembly but it also means a dress rehearsal a dry run verse 4 said these are the feast of the Lord even holy convocations which he shall proclaim in their seasons I said last night that even though Jesus said that no man knows the day or the hour of his return. He also rebuked the Pharisees for not knowing or recognizing the times and seasons of their visitation of the Messiah. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. I don't need to tell you what you already know. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. That's what people quote when they don't want to venture into the sub subject of Bible prophecy. We don't know. So some people get up in the pulpit and say, well, we don't know, so just be ready either way. But they never take time to consider what you're talking about. Do you know that the Bible does not prepare us it doesn't give us any instruction at all to prepare for the great tribulation if we had to go through it. Nothing. So if you're going to tell your congregations to just, Brother McGee, just go with the flow and whatever happens, God will take care of all of us. Well, I can tell you that there's not much hope in that to the church. When the great tribulation takes place on this earth, there is going to be hell unleashed on this earth like you cannot imagine. There are going to be demons loosed from hell that are going to come looking like, looking like creatures, like locusts, and they're going to sting people. And the Bible said they'll torment people, the inhabitants of the earth, those that are left here, for five months, and they won't even be able to die. The horrors that are coming your minds can't comprehend it. You, you can't think about it and come up with what it's going to be like. But the Bible didn't tell us what to do during that time. 
what he told us to do is look for his return. So Paul said, yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But here's the transition. He said in verse 3, for when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Paul's still speaking of the same event here, but he's talking about how differently it's going to affect two classes of people, identified here as us and them. He said, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness or ignorance, that that day should overtake you as a thief. He just said, you know you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But he said, but ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The world is not going to see it because they're not looking for it. They're not watching for it. But he wants you to know what time it is because he wants you to get ready. Not just get ready so you can be caught away, but to get ready so you can help somebody else get ready. He wants us to get ready for what's about to take place. He said, for they that sleep, sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation or deliverance. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation or deliverance by our Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew 24 and 32, he said, now learn a parable of the fig tree. I quoted this last night. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, then know that it is near and even at the doors. We are in the last days and we can see it. We know we're in the last days. But the world doesn't know. They're still looking for the next election to change the course of everything. They say, well, every four years or every eight years, we'll have a turnover and we'll get it back. We'll write this sinking ship but you're not going to do that this time because it's not going to be another cycle we are in the final cycle we are in the last days we are in the last hours of the last days and what we're going to do for God we need to do it now and I mentioned also last night that this is exactly why most scholars believe that although we don't know the day the precise day or the hour when Jesus will come for the church we can know the times and seasons we should know them because Jesus told us exactly what to watch for. He did not want us to be caught unaware of the hour that we're living in. And the most likely time of the year that we're going to explore tonight is when the Lord will return is during the Feast of Trumpets. It takes, some, it takes place sometime during the latter part of September and the early part of October each year. But why do scholars tend to focus on this particular time or season of the year or this feast of the Lord in particular? The answer may be actually very simple and I hope that I'll be able to explain this to you tonight because the first four feasts of the Lord have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled in the exact order on the exact date which God said they were to be observed. 
And the next event or the next feast of the Lord that's in line to be fulfilled is the rapture of the church. And then the last remaining two are going to be fulfilled during the great tribulation. I mentioned, I think, last night, I'm going to talk about this in more detail, but the Sabbath was kept every week, but these seven feasts of the Lord were only kept one time a year. These feasts of the Lord actually help us to better understand the most recent Bereshit and Shemitah prophecies and their indisputable connection to what is about to happen in this world. The Feast of Trumpets, if, if Brother would put up the first picture, symbolizes the rapture, the last great harvest, and that seventh month corresponds with our September. In the, in the first picture, I want you to notice up here at the very top, in the top corner, I want you to notice that the three festivals at the top that Jesus fulfilled was all in the same month. Just keep that picture up there for a few minutes for reference here. This is very important. Beginning in the spring, the seven Jewish feasts are the Passover. That was first. It had to be first. Number two was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the very next day. And number three was the Feast of First Fruits, which was three days later. Notice here that all three of these feasts happened in the very first month. And then the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, it happened 50 days later in the third month. As you can see down here, it's the, it's the third month. And when God, when God put these in order, he told them to celebrate or observe my feast in their seasons. Had to be in their season. God did this scheduling. God did it, and he did not schedule any other feast for nearly four months. And the next feast would be the Feast of Trumpets, indicating that the final harvest was finished. So when you see Pentecost, that quarter of the year is gone. It began with the Passover, then the unleavened bread, the first fruits, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. Nothing is scheduled now until you get here to the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. I want to show you something here. Nothing was scheduled for the winter months because any travel would have interfered with both the early and the latter rain harvest. So the goal was to do your job, finish your work, educate your children, do all the things that need to be done in ordinary life, but also remember to do the other things, the spiritual things that also need to be done as well. Some people say, we got to be working for God every day. We need to quit. I've had some people come and say, you think I ought to quit my job and just go witness to people? No. Get busy about God's business. And do the things that you do every day to take care of your family. God made it so the church and you could work together. There would no be no conflict in the mix as long as you put him first, as you long as you make him your priority your bills will get paid You're, you'll be taken care of your kids will be educated everything you need you'll get it you may not get everything you want but you'll get everything you need if you put God first some events in fact can be celebrated at home many of them can be celebrated at home with family or friends or neighbors like the Sabbath you can pray at home. You can worship at home. And my God, you ought to. You should be doing that. But other occasions required a pilgrimage. 
like the Feast of Pentecost. So when the doors of the church are open, you need to set aside everything else in your life going on and make the pilgrimage to the house of the Lord. Because the Bible said the Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. What's that mean? He wants you to worship at home. He'll hear you when you pray at home. He'll see you dance and shout in your home. But he loves more when we can all get together, Pastor, and magnify his name together. Oh, let us magnify the Lord together. That's what God wants. He wants all of our voices to come together and form one great symphony of sound to exalt him, to magnify him, to glorify his name. That's why the New Testament said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So from the Feast of Pentecost to the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, from those two feasts, nothing was scheduled because it was harvest time. From the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to the rapture of the church, the final harvest, nothing else was scheduled because it's harvest time. Jesus said in John 4, 35, Say not ye, Say not ye there are four months and then cometh the harvest. That's not a statement, that's a question. It was a question. Say not ye, isn't this what you say? There are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Not everything is harvested in October. Yeah, you're in a part of the country, they'll get strawberries here in, what, April or May? The Feast of Pentecost, which begins the harvest season, to the Feast of Trumpets, which ends the harvest season, is four months of summer harvest. So the New Testament church age is harvest time. And the New Testament church age is about to end with the Feast of Trumpets, indicating that the final harvest is finished. And this is why so many Bible scholars believe that the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah is going to end the church age and begin the tribulation. And the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which immediately follows the Feast of Trumpets, it's not a feast day. It's listed, but it's a day of sorrow, so they call it a fast day because it's going to be marked with great suffering. What do you think that's about? And the time of great suffering for the Jews is going to end at the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot when Jesus himself will return to this earth to tabernacle or dwell with men. So the Jewish Feast of the Lord, all of these together, were meant to symbolize the complete redemptive story of Christ beginning with his death on the cross at the Passover as the Passover lamb and ending with the second coming which we'll, he will tabernacle or dwell among his people on the earth. Now one writer said, the Jews see the Feast of Tabernacles as a day of an awakening blast. Many Jews believe that the resurrection of the dead will occur on the Feast of Trumpets. Not Christians, many Jews believe that the resurrection of the dead will occur on the Feast of Trumpets because on that day there are 100 trumpet blasts. The final, long, and most significant trumpet blast is called the Last Trumpet. He goes on to say the day of the trumpets is also called the Hidden Day. 
It was hidden because they didn't know exactly what day it would begin due to the fact that it's the only feast that starts on a new moon. And that's why it was a two-day feast. If it's cloudy, they don't see the moon, they can't call it. It was a two-day feast because they didn't want to celebrate it on the wrong day. So concerning Rosh Hashanah, the Jews would typically say, of the day and hour, no one knows. End of quote. I want to show you very quickly how Jesus fulfilled the first four spring feasts, and the number one was the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, God told Moses and Aaron, to order every man to take for himself a lamb for the house. It was to be chosen on the 10th day of the first month, keep it up until the 14th day, then it would be killed. That was lamb selection day. Now Jesus in Matthew 23 and 37 said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He was not just speaking as a man. He was speaking as God, who had all the way back in the Old Testament, he had worked to try to bring them into the fold. And they were always whoring after other gods. They always got themselves in trouble. He said, Behold your house is left unto you desolate for I say unto you ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord this was a prophecy I mentioned last night about the Messiah being identified as Messiah and then be rejected Jesus is quoting here from Psalms 118 and 26 that's what he's quoting from him from here and exactly like it was prophesied Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the first month on Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day. And the crowds cried, Hosanna to the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mentioned that last night. There's two places in the scripture that say Jesus wept. One was when he wept with Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. The second was in the 19th chapter of the book of Luke when he rode into Jerusalem and they cried, Hosanna to the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wept and said, you don't even know the time of your visitation. The lamb was selected on this day, and this lamb was the Passover lamb. Now, the Passover lamb's not like other lambs. Other sacrifices were brought to the priest in the temple. He would take them in and offer them for you while you sat outside wringing your hands wondering if God accepted it. But the Passover lamb was different. The Passover lamb was not killed on an altar. It had to be killed in an open courtyard while its blood would be spilling upon the ground. The Jews say that when God would see the blood of the Passover lamb spilling on the ground, it was to remind God of a promise he made. That one day he would not just push sin up for another year, but one day he would completely remove it. He would wash it away and forgive it forever. So the priest would take the Passover lamb in the open courtyard in the temple. He would cut its throat with one swift motion, allowing the blood to spill upon the ground at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
But while the Passover lamb was dying in the open courtyard, there was also another priest standing on the pinnacle of the temple. And he was watching the lamb. And when he saw the lamb take its last breath, it's finally inhaled that last gasp of air and exhaled. When he would look at that, he would raise the shofar and blow it aloud to announce to all of Israel that the Passover lamb has died. That was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But at the same time, there was another Passover lamb just outside the north wall of Jerusalem being hung between heaven and earth whose blood was also spilling on the ground as a reminder to God that one day he made a promise he would not just push sin up for another year but one day he would forgive it and forever wash it away. Hallelujah. And at three o'clock in the afternoon while the priest was blowing the shofar on the pinnacle of the temple to announce that the Passover lamb had died. The Bible said about the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon Jesus lifted up his voice and said it is finished I can assure you it was not the lamb in the courtyard of the temple that got God's attention but it was the Passover lamb that hanging between heaven and earth on a cross that once and forever finished the blood work where we are today is not because of the birth of Christ it is because of the death of Christ it's not because of the manger it's because of the cross we are here today because of the blood. I'm glad that he breaks bread and fish. I'm glad he's our provider. I'm glad he heals the sick and raises the dead. But we're saved today because the cross of Calvary paid it all. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled, you don't have it up there now, that's all right. He fulfilled the Passover. That day, literally, he fulfilled the Passover. The very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's bread that doesn't rise. Oh, hallelujah. Three days later, the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days after that, they were to observe the Feast of Pentecost. Jesus was chosen on Lamb Selection Day. He was killed on the Passover. He was laid in a grave as unleavened bread that did not rise. Three days later, he came forth as the first fruits of them that sleep when he rose from the dead. And 50 days later, he poured out his spirit on 120 believers, giving birth to the New Testament church age, beginning the harvest season. We're in the harvest season today, and we've got power and authority because we've got Christ in us. since Jesus made it clear that he already fulfilled each of the first four feasts of Israel on the precise day, the exact way that they were supposed to be fulfilled during his first coming to the earth. Most scholars believe that the Lord must return for his church during the fifth Rosh Hashanah, the feast of Rosh Hashanah, the fifth feast, or the feast of trumpets. One of the clearest indications of Jesus' identity as the true Messiah is his ability to fulfill every prophecy of the Old Testament with absolute precision. And that means the purpose of these seven feasts were far more significant than just another reason to celebrate something. Every time you turn around, America's had a new holiday. You go out to the mailbox and there's no mail in it and you wonder what in the world's going on. The bank's closed. What's going on? It's another holiday. 
We're celebrating Balloon Day. We're celebrating the color yellow. We're, we got something we're celebrating all the time, giving everybody another holiday. But all of these dates that the Lord set, these significant feasts, they were telling us a story. They were doing a dry run. They were symbolic of something else that is soon to be fulfilled. I want you to do it on the right day. I want you to do it on the right hour. I want you to do it as long as I tell you to do it. You do it because it's symbolizing the redemption of mankind. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost began the harvest season and it will last until the Feast of Trumpets which will mark the end, the final end of the harvest season or the church age. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That's the final harvest. There's no more coming back. He's gonna catch us away. We're gonna get a new body. We're gonna be transformed. We're gonna be changed. You won't be flesh that's gonna fail anymore. You don't have to worry about misery and anxiety and and depression. You don't have to worry about those things anymore. You don't have to worry about poverty or sickness or hospitals. You don't have to worry about any of it because our bodies are going to be changed. These seven feasts of the Lord were called holy convocations. They were dress rehearsals for something greater that would be later fulfilled. Leviticus 23 and 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations which he shall proclaim in their seasons. All of these feasts were observed in the Old Testament, all of them, but none of them were fulfilled until the new. It should be noticed, noted here that Moses did not set the times of the seasons for these feasts. God did. He set them in the spring and the fall so they would not interfere with the harvest season. Nor would they hinder or complicate any travel routes that were necessary to make a pilgrimage to the house of the Lord. The first four feasts were in the spring because they symbolized something new, the beginning of something new. And they were all fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. The Passover in the spring was fulfilled with his death. The unleavened bread was in the spring. It was fulfilled with his burial. The first fruits was in the spring. It was fulfilled with his resurrection. And the, and the fruit of the, the feast of Pentecost was in the spring. It was fulfilled when the Holy Ghost was poured out. But the last three feasts, the last three fall feasts symbolize the end of something. It's the end of something that has not yet been fulfilled. The trumpets are going have not yet been fulfilled. They're in the fall. It's going to be the rapture. The atonement is in the fall. It's not yet fulfilled. It's not a feast. It's a fast. And it will take place during the tribulation. And the, uh, the uh, feast of tabernacles is in the fall. It's not fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled when Jesus comes to reign. And these seasons were not interchangeable. Look, I love Thanksgiving and I love Christmas. And, and you, may, you may watch a, a Christmas in July on the Hallmark Channel. But I'm telling you, you can't change when the celebrations are. Christmas is the 
same time and Thanksgiving is the same time. You can't celebrate them on Labor Day or the 4th of July. And in the same way, the feast of the Lord must be observed in their God-appointed season because they were symbolic of his redemption plan as well as the absolute order of a seven-year Shemitah cycle. He wanted you to stay with the seven because he wants to show you something. He doesn't want you to be ignorant concerning his coming. He is right around the corner. We are living in the last day and this is the time for the church to start looking up. Hallelujah. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not recognizing the times and seasons of their visitation. The wise men told Herod exactly where he would be born or the, the wise men and Herod were told by the religious leaders exactly where he would be born. Herod wanted to know when the star appeared because he wanted to know how old he was. That's not the only sign markers or time markers. The historical anchor points that also tell when his return was near. Which brings us to the two words that most people outside of the Jewish faith have never heard before in 2000 until 2019. That word is Bereshit and Shemitah. I don't have time to scratch the surface to these two, to these two words and what they mean. In fact, in our home church, I've done two days I think on each one of them they're complex and I would lose you doing the math but I'm going to recommend that you watch three videos that were preached by brother Harold Hoffman UPC pastor in Michigan he is an expert in genealogies and he will show the details to you of what I only have time to paraphrase today the messages I've got them here I'm going to give them to your pastor at the end of the service it's the blessing of the Bereshit prophecy where he discusses the details. The mystery of 17. It'll blow your mind. And another message called Hidden in Plain Sight. I promise you, those three messages will make you fall in love with the Word of God all over again. And you're going to be shocked that you were not able to see this until now. Because it's going to give you a glimpse of not only how interwoven the word of God is, but how deeply complex it is as well. The Bible is a book of sevens. There are seven days in the week, not eight days or ten days. The eighth day is merely the first day of the next seven-day cycle. All work was to cease on the seventh day because the work was finished. But every seven year was also a sabbatical year known as Shemitah. And the seventh year was to be a Shemitah year or a year of rest for the land, which is why Israel went into the captivity of Babylon because they did not observe that. The same seven-day, the same seven-year cycle applied to millennia years as well. 6,000 years man will work, but then there will be 1,000 years of rest during the millennial reign of Christ. And that 6,000 years of man's time is quickly coming to a close. The sun is about to set on the sixth day, and the seventh day of rest is going to begin. God started off a brand new year for Israel in Exodus chapter 12 when he established the Passover. And that symbolic feast was the event that was to restart everything. God wanted us to know these dates. He wanted us to know. He doesn't tell us everything, but he wanted us to know these dates and there had to be a reason. 
Show that other picture, brother, that menorah, I think. The menorah has seven branches on the candlestick. The Passover had to come first. This is what it symbolically represented. Because what was going to happen at Calvary was going to change everything. I don't want to lose you here. Stay with me here. What was going to happen at Calvary would change everything. Calvary would be the hinge point of all history. The blood of Jesus would reset everything. And all of history would be measured from that particular moment in time that Jesus said, it is finished. And Pentecost was represented by the light in the middle. Let that sink in a minute. Dividing the rest of the feast of the Lord. And this brings me to the Bereshit prophecy. God said in Isaiah 49 and 6, He said, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that were not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Hebrew is actually three languages in one. It's made up of 22 letters in the, the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. Every letter in the alphabet is a pictograph, but each letter is also assigned a number. But it's also a spoken or a phonic language. So it's visible, it's numerical, and it's audible. There's no other language like it in the world. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter 1 and 20, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Men, I said last night, did not write the Bible, God did. Jesus said not one jot or tittle would be overlooked until all be fulfilled in Matthew 5 and 18. So when God was going to speak to man by writing his word, the first thing God wanted Moses to write in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is in the beginning. But what takes three words to convey in the English was only one word in the Hebrew, Bereshit. I'm only going to point out a couple of things about this. But what I think it revealed that's important to our generation is two things. It tells us the exact age of Adam when he sinned. This is the mystery that we've searched for for centuries. Why is that important? If we knew that date, there would not have been a book written called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come in 88. If we knew the date that Adam sinned, we would never have had people say, well, 2000 is going to be the year when it has to happen. Or some said 1997. Everybody giving predictions and it's always been wrong. Amen. Because they didn't know where the date should start. And the second thing is, 
What time is it really on God's clock? The reason that's important to us is because it actually allows us to accurately apply Shemitah cycles to determine when the 6,000 years of man's time is over and the millennial reign is going to begin. I said all that to say this, that if the Bereshit prophecies are right, if the genealogies that are recorded in your Bible are right, if they're accurate, then the 6,000 years of man's time will end and the millennial reign of Christ will begin in the year 2030. I knew it'd get quiet there. And if we do not go through the great tribulation, known as the Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble, and I don't believe we go through that, then the rapture may occur this fall at the Feast of Trumpets. Let that sink in. If the dates are right, if the final thousand-year millennial reign is about to begin in 2030, if we subtract seven years from that, from 2030, the rapture could take place between now and the Feast of Trumpets in 2023. That's about seven months. So with all the characters now assembled on God's, on God's stage for God's grand finale, the, the first Gog-Magog war, incidentally, is just about to begin. The very first of very characters that the nations of the Bible or, or the characters and, and nations of the Bible that were prophesied that would make up the armies involved in the final battle of Armageddon have chosen sides this week. Everything is now in place as we watch and wait for the church to be removed from the scene. The Shemitah cycle of years is believed to have started the day that Adam sinned, and yet it was not officially put into practice until the day the children of Israel entered into the promised land. And as long as you have at least one verifiable Shemitah date to start from, it's possible to count backward or forward in time to mark every Shemitah cycle. But there's also... There's also 49-year jubilee cycles. Israel entered into the promised land in the year 1408. Between It's between 1408 and 1407 B.C., which started the countdown to the first jubilee cycle of years. So it's not just a jubilee year that we're in right now, but this is the 70th. Oh, we're talking about a book of sevens, and we're talking about 70 weeks, Daniel, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. This is the 70th year of jubilee since the children of Israel entered into the promised land in 1408 and 1407 BC. It's an exciting time. The Jews believe we're at the end. The church ought to do a little bit of study and realize we are at the end. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen, but we are at the end. 6,000 years of man's time is coming to a close and we need to be ready. Many rabbis in Israel believe this jubilee will reveal their long-awaited Messiah. They believe that their Messiah would appear in 2022 based on Shemitah cycles. He's going to be the Antichrist. So if this really is the 70th jubilee, this may be the date that ushers in the final 70th week of Daniel's prophecy beginning the Great Tribulation. Somebody said, do you think it is? We're all about to find out. We are all about to find out. Pastor said last night, 
he, the Lord spoke to him about this day. What if this is the day? Jesus is coming someday, but what if this is the day? Man, it'll change everything. Amen. When you realize that nothing's important except being ready for the rapture of the church, if this is the day, we got to be ready for it. Hallelujah. The time is called Jacob's Trouble. It's full of sevens. Seven golden candlesticks, seven crowns, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven hills, seven kings, seven visions. They all come to an end at the seven-year tribulation period. Only God could have orchestrated such precision in order and time management as it relates not only to human but also cosmic events. What are you saying, Pastor? Before you ever get to tomorrow, he's already there. He's already there. Can you give me just a few, few more minutes? We want to come to church relaxed and comfortable. And even more important than that, we want to leave relaxed and comfortable. Because we're more interested in winning people than we are winning souls. We, in fact, we, we have programs, so many programs in some churches to hold people because the sanitized gospels that we're preaching to them is not enough to keep them. Some people are so unfaithful to the house of God, we don't even know if they're members or not. We often endure church instead of having church. We're, we want to get home before we ever get here. If you think a, a, a home church or live feed services is awkward, and difficult you've not seen anything yet I'm going to tell you we need to be prepared after the rapture everything is going to change because the church is going to be gone this world's going to be run by a man possessed with the devil we need tears in the altar far more than we need shouting in the aisles we need a relationship with God like we've never had before Let me get on a bully pulpit here for just a minute. I wonder how many services do sinners have to come to in an apostolic church before they get to hear a message of salvation. How long do they have to tread water before somebody throws them a lifeline? How much longer do they need to walk in darkness and confusion before we share the light of the gospel with them? How, how long should they struggle with their feelings of depression, hopelessness, anxiety, and suicide uh, when, when they could come to the house of the Lord and be freed from all that? They don't need us telling them how God wants them to have a bigger house or a better car or a bigger bank account. Uh, uh, we, need, uh, we need to understand what we're here for. The bloody, violent abuse and murder of an innocent man on Calvary was not God's way of ensuring that you and I could have more stuff. The gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to offer a way of escape for the lost souls of mankind. And if the preaching of the gospel is meant to save the lost, how are they going to be saved if they come to an apostolic church and never hear it? We need to let them know what the truth is so they can make a choice about what they want to do with that. Many preachers in this generation are preaching merely to retain crowds. They're afraid to veer off from their positive feel-good sermons 
as well as there come as you are is fine approach to God. And it's all because we can't afford to risk losing people. Or, or we may assume that they wouldn't be interested in the message so we don't want them to hear it. How sad and as tragic is it going to be for a sinner to stand before God Almighty in the judgment and find out that God led them to the right place that was never able, they, they were in the right place to hear the right message, but they were never able to do the right thing because they never heard the gospel ever preach to them. Acts 2.38 is paramount. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to be baptized in his name. You've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. If it makes you mad, I'm sorry, but it's the only lifeline that's going to save your soul. Standing before God, realize that God put the sinner in the exact place they needed to be. They were in the right church because they believed in Jesus' name, baptism. They believed that sinners needed to be filled with the Holy Ghost to be saved. But the preacher was so afraid that the salvation message of the book of Acts would scare them off that they never got to hear it preached. Afraid to preach it because it might affect the numbers of the finances, so let's just let them hang around the church. Let them stay there for years and enjoy the fun and the fellowship. It's like having a bunch of people doomed in an airplane that's going down. Everybody in the plane knows it's going down except one man. Everybody else got a strapped parachute on their back, but there's one guy on the plane who has no idea what the parachute is, never heard of a parachute. In his mind, he's wondering, why does everybody seem to be wearing a strange backpack on their back? But what makes it even worse is there's one on the plane for him too, but nobody wants to tell him what's going to happen because they don't want to scare him. They don't want to scare him. They don't want him to be worried. So nobody encourages him you got to put it on. Listen, our water is to remit sins. This altar is to be forgiven of your sins. And this is where you can be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. If you're lost, I'm telling you, there's a parachute here that's got your name on it. Jesus is coming. The world's going to feel the wrath of God like it's never felt it before. The sinners and backsliders all around you need to know. Jesus drove out the money changers. He said it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you made it a den of thieves. It's just a business for you. It's just another way to make a profit. It's being guided by your vision. Not by God's purpose. They were in the right place. But they were doing the wrong thing. I know your pastor preaches it. I'm not talking about him. But I know we got a lot of folks watching online. <laughs> and I know it makes a man. Some of them already turned it off when I got on that. It's not our goal to create fear in anybody. But I'd much rather that you be afraid than to allow you to remain ignorant. Amen. Anyone you know and love, they have a right to know the truth. They may not be comfortable hearing it, but they've got a right to know the truth so they can choose how they want to respond to that. Stand with me. I'm sorry for going so long. If the house is on fire, I would want somebody that loved me enough or cared enough about me to tell me about it before it's too late for me to escape. The prophetic signs of the end are everywhere and they cannot be denied. 
And when the Jews are calling these the end of days, the end of days, and everything and everyone is now in place. The global conditions are right for the Gog-Magog war. The global food and energy shortages have already started. Global financial conditions are perfect. The right global social political systems are perfectly in place. The global rejection and defiance of God Almighty has reached levels we've never seen in history. The LGBTQ agendas and transgender confusion have rotted global society and are demanding acceptance even from schools and churches. It is the fulfillment of Romans chapter 1 right before our eyes. Every form of government at all levels is deeply corrupted. The whole world is inundated with senseless violence, lawlessness. The very concept of justice is dead in the streets. Nuclear war is now a real threat during a time when the whole world des desperately needs a real leader. The Antichrist is alive, ladies and gentlemen. The Jews have a Messiah. I'm going to talk about him a little bit tomorrow. We're at the end, the very end. It's like, brother, get, give me some musicians here. I'm going to do an altar call. We got, brother, brother Anthony Mangan said, if we're out of here in chapter 4 of Revelation, if the church is gone then, and we're seeing chapters 8 and chapter 9 already being assembled now, how close must we be to chapter 4? We're at the last, the last minutes of the last hours of the church age. The Feast of Trumpets is about to gather the church, the final harvest. And whatever we're going to do for God, now's the time to do it. We are led down a path of self-destruction in our world today by a bunch of incompetent leaders. Somebody said, how could educated, college-educated people be so foolish? Because they've been turned over to a reprobate mind. They've rejected and mocked the only God that had the power to save them. And now they have no discernment. Can I tell you this? Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot have church as normal. Every service we come to we must get into the presence of the Lord. Whatever you've got to do, we have to worship. We have to get into the presence of the Lord. We cannot, we cannot afford to have dead church, routine church, formality church. We've got to get into the presence of the Lord because people's eternity is depending upon that. God wants to use somebody in this last day. Is it going to be you? I want to open these altars. Is it going to be you? Are you the one he wants to use? Would you present yourself? Would you make yourself available to him? Jesus is coming. Is it going to be this year? We don't know. But the signs are pointing to it. We got to be ready. We're watching things unfold before our very eyes. We've got to be ready for what's about to take place in this world. Would you find a place to seek the Lord? Would you join us in the altar? Would you find a place somewhere? 
Touch the Lord. Would you get a hold of him today? Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.